Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, welcome to episode 157 of the True Crime Couple podcast. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we want to start off by wishing a happy 40th birthday to one of our listeners, Marnie. It was so cute of your boyfriend to reach out to us and... We're so happy that we got to help in making your birthday special. And to all of our listeners, we want to say thank you for being amazing, for listening and reviewing, and for being so kind. We love the community we have, and I can confidently say that I think we have the best audience of all time, a carefully curated amount of listeners. I agree with that. I really do. (laughs) And because you're all so amazing, I think it's time we just get into what you're here for true crime so john are you ready to hear something crazy let's do it beeson illinois is located just in the center of the state within logan county and is without a doubt the smallest town we have ever covered covering an area just shy of half of a square mile its population has never exceeded 200 residents at the time of the murders which was in 2009 Their population was 186, and now it sits at 147. I know I have said this time and time again, and if you listen to true crime podcasts, you've without a doubt heard it at nauseum. But in the case of Beeson, no truer statement has ever been spoken. Everyone knew everyone. How could you not? And like many small towns in America, residents stick around And over time, families become intertwined through marriage, which really increase the everyone knows your business kind of vibe that Beeson gives off. Nowhere else is the interconnectedness of the town most illustrated than in the tragedy that befell it in the fall of 2009, when most of the members of the G family were slaughtered mercilessly in their home, dropping the already too small population down by five. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Ruth Constant and Raymond Rick G went on their first date on Valentine's Day in 1997. And shortly thereafter, the couple married in Beeson when she was 27 and he was 34. They had met while Ruth was a tenant living in a house owned by Rick. And I guess if you want it to be a little cheesy, you could say that she had now taken up a more permanent residency. Each of them had children from previous relationships, which created a very blended family. Rick had three children already, and they were older and lived with their mothers, but they were just about ready to be off on their own. Ruth had two smaller children, Justina, who was four years old at the time they married, and Dylan, who was just two. 
Justina and Dylan lived full time with the newlywed couple, and Rick's children also visited their father and his new family as often as they could, as they were very happy for him. In 1998, the couple added another child to the mix, a son who they named Austin in 1998. Following the birth of Austin a few years later was a daughter who they named Jessica. Unfortunately, Jessica suffered from a severe brain injury, which resulted in many profound disabilities. Little is known about this aspect of the G's family life, but Jessica was eventually put into DCFS custody and admitted to a long-term care facility as a ward of the state. And I can imagine this is because the family must have had difficulties not just caring for a child with special needs, but also the fact that she required uh, 24-hour care. Yeah, it must be difficult, especially when they have so many other kids that they have to take care of. Yeah. And they both work, I'm sure. Yeah, it was something that was um, a very sad time for the family. Yeah, sad. After Jessica, the couple went on to have one more child, another girl who they named Tabitha in 2006. And that is the story of how the G family came to be. They were very well known within Beeson because, well, they made up 4% of it. (laughs) And their family members were kind of known as like the Beeson Brady Bunch. And that's how this blended family was accepted by the community. And also because they are such a large percentage of the population, somebody was like always related or connected to the G's in some way. So they were very well known. That's really funny, actually. And all of that background is what brings us to the fall of 2009. On the 21st of September, an 11-year-old classmate of Austin G., also 11, and his half-brother Dylan Constant, then 14, so he was friends with both of the brothers, rode over to the small blue house that the G's called home. He wanted to show the boys his new bike. And both boys had not been in school that Monday, so he was even more excited to, like, surprise them with it, as only an 11-year-old could be. Austin was one of his best friends, and Dylan used to play with them all the time. But recently, things had changed. Ruth and Rick G. had confided to many um, that they were having difficulties with Dylan, who was now 14. He would not leave his room for hours upon hours, all he wanted to do was sit in the dark and play video games. And it seemed as if he had just lost all of his happiness. He was angry all the time. And the family, a hardworking blue collar family that struggled to make ends meet, were not really understanding what Dylan was going through, or exactly how to help him. And that's not to say they didn't want to help him. They wanted to, but I feel like it was just like a really, it was a big lack of understanding and also coming from two different generations, you know, like I feel like that first generation of parents that didn't play video games to the first generation of kids who did is really difficult because they don't understand, you know, video games and the communication that you have with other people and... right. It's. I was going to actually follow this up by asking, I mean, was there like an event that took place that made him this way? Or was it just that there was a disconnect because him spending time in his room wasn't because he was upset, but it was because he was playing video games? Um, it 
well, I don't know. It's really complicated when it comes to Dylan because Rick did explain to his mother once that, and his mother also lives in Beeson, that he feared that if they didn't get help for Dylan soon, that Dylan, because of the uh, violent rages that he went into, would one day hurt himself or hurt the family. Okay, so maybe there's a mix of both here. Yes. Um, Now, Rick voiced that he did have a problem with the violent video games that his son played, and he thought that his anger and violence wasn't because of the video games. Like, he, he didn't think it helped, but he said he felt like his son's rage went beyond that. And it was Dylan's behavior that kind of alienated him from the rest of the family, which is why I think he sought solace within his bedroom by himself. And he really alienated his himself from especially his brother Austin, to whom he used to be close, and their friend Seton, who's the kid driving over on the bike. Okay. So when Seton Landstrom got to the front porch of his friend's house, he knew that something was wrong. His excitement quickly turned into a giant pit in his stomach. He jumped up the front steps quickly, looking down, and that's when he saw it. Blood. A lot of blood. He slowly raised his head to look up at the front door, and he noticed that it was open, just about a foot. He was scared. Whose blood was that? So he called out into the ether of the darkness beyond the open door. Hello, he called. Is anyone home? He heard nothing back. He paused for a moment, heart pounding, and then self-preservation kicked in. And he ran down the stairs, jumped on his new bike, which now he was grateful for for a different reason, and took off down the street. He pumped his legs as fast as he could and raced to the home of Nicole G., Nicole was the closest family member of the G family. Okay. So he decided that going to her house would be the quickest thing to do. Nicole was Rick's daughter from a previous relationship. She was now an adult and just had her second child two months prior. Now, as only could happen in a small town, 11-year-old Seton knew that Nicole was working nights, so he knew she would be home. (laughs) <laughs> it is really funny how like just everyone knows everyone's business and where they live and yeah. what they do. But I will say though, uh, kudos to the eleven-year-old kid because, I mean, he must have been so afraid at that door. He was, and then at least he went and got help because he. I think he realized that someone must have died there. Yeah, he's later going to testify at the trial that's had, and he said that was the most scared he ever was. Oh yeah. So at home with Nicole were two men that were installing new carpeting. And like I said before, the interconnectedness of Beeson kicks in here because the man that was installing her carpet was married to her grandmother, Rick G's mother. So the the guy installing the carpet is Rick G's stepfather. Okay. And her (laughs) step-grandfather. Gotcha. And his son is there. So like that's her uncle you could say i could see how this could get confusing yes but okay yeah everyone's connected yeah so her step-grandfather and uncle if you're getting technical were there so really when seton got to nicole's house um he's going to be telling the members of the 
G family and extended G family, what's going on? So he gets there and despite exerting himself by riding as fast as he could across town, which was half a mile, he was, as later described by the two men, completely white. He told the men, there's something wrong at Dylan's house. You'd better go down there. Now, this gave the two men cause for concern because Rick was supposed to have been working with them that day. Like Rick, with his stepfather and stepbrother, were supposed to be installing new carpet at his daughter's house. Okay, and then I'm guessing he didn't show up. And he didn't show up. Okay. So this is going to cause Rick's stepfather and stepbrother to go check on the family. And to make the story easier, Rick's stepfather's name is William, and his son's name is Adam. So okay. I know I'm introducing a lot There's of a lot characters, of players. Yeah. <laughs> but it'll all make sense because it's William and Adam who go to check on Rick and his family. So the two men left in their pickup truck and minutes later, Nicole would follow them. When the men had arrived at the house, William told his son to stay in the truck. As he approached the porch, he saw a knife by the foot of like the front stairs And just like the boy had said, there was blood on the porch and the steps leading, you know, up to the porch. And your mind never wants to go to murder. And that's why I think at first William thought, well, the family does raise chickens. So maybe they killed a chicken or something got at one of the chickens and killed it on the front step. Like he was trying to rationalize the irrational. But at that point, Adam is going to get out of his truck when he knows something is seriously going wrong. And he met his father on the porch. He didn't want him going in the house by himself. And in fact, Adam is going to tell his father, like, no, now it's your turn to wait outside. Let me go in and see what's going on. When he entered the house, it was dark. Adam yelled out for Rick as he carefully walked inside. He felt along the wall until he found what he was looking for, a light switch. And since he flipped that switch, Adam's life has never been the same. There, crumbled up on the floor, was the body of Rick G. Although it would have been hard to tell who it was based on the injuries he suffered, because the 46-year-old man was unrecognizable. Later, it would be determined that he suffered 13 blows to the head alone. Once he saw Rick's body, he went outside and told his father that he needed to call 911. By this time, Nicole had arrived at the house, and she was told that her father had been found inside, and he was dead. She was hysterical and wanted to go inside, but the men wouldn't let her. William, all the while, was thinking... How am I going to tell my wife that her son is dead? I mean, yeah, this, I mean, this is actually crazy. Mm-hmm. Now, are, how are we looking on the family members here, like in the home? Because there's a lot of them, right? Well, that's why Nicole was insistent. Like, she kept telling William, like, you need to go into the house. There's more people inside. We have to see what happened to everybody because she knows all of her 
her, her whole family is inside that house. Right, exactly. So you walked in, you found my father kind of by the front entryway, but what about inside? So she wouldn't calm down unless they went and checked on everybody. So reluctantly, as they waited for the police to arrive, William goes back into the house. And he, as his son did, saw Rick crumpled on the ground, a bloody beaten mess. He also saw the unbelievable amount of blood that covered the room. Because Adam had kind of seen that and then left, and William's taking it in. There was blood pooled all over the floor, but the spatter was all over the walls and the ceiling. It was so intense that it looked like someone had splashed red paint everywhere. What a hard decision it is to like decide to go in or stay out. Because in the back of my mind, I wouldn't want to go in. Well, police would advise you not to in case the attacker is still in the house. Right. Either still in the house or, you know, you could be contaminating a crime scene and make it harder for investigators to find out who did this. Very true. But I think Nicole's concern is what if someone's in there that needs our help? That's also true. That's the other thing. And she just wants to know. Right. Where's my family? So um, he knew that he had gone in there to find the other members of the family. So although it was difficult, he continued inside. He knew that there were five other members of the family. And as he progressed into the house, he found them all. Dylan, who was 14 years old, was found lying on his right side in a fetal position near the entrance of his parents' bedroom. His mother, Ruth, was inside in the bedroom uh, within reach of her son, Dylan. She was wearing a nightgown and met a fate similar to that of her husband. 11-year-old Austin was in the bathroom that was connected to the master bedroom, and he must have been there trying to hide. He was face down on the cold floor, wearing nothing but his underwear. This had to have happened at night, William was thinking, based on what everyone was wearing. He continued through the house, and he found Justina, who was now 16 years old. She was on her bed. And finally, there was little three-year-old Tabitha, lying in a pool of her own blood at the entrance to her bedroom. An entire family had been brutally beaten to death. William fell to his knees at the sight of Tabitha and sobbed. Adam, hearing his father, went inside, grabbed him, and helped him out. Both Logan County Sheriff's officers and Illinois State Troopers arrived at the scene 12 minutes after the initial call was made to them. Um, and the call stated that, they believe that a family had been murdered. So it was a very quick response time. Yeah, I know. Like at first glance, you're like, well, 12 minutes. But I'm sure because it was a small town, it was maybe a little harder to get to. Yeah, and there's no police force within the town. So it's the jurisdiction of the sheriffs. But for the sheriff and the state police to arrive in 12 minutes, that's that's pretty quick. That is pretty good. Because the um, where the sheriff's office is, is 10 miles away. So they left right away after the phone call. William and Adam hung their heads, knowing what the officers were seeing. More blood than you could ever imagine again, and a destroyed family in the one place that they should have felt safe. 
But then the three of them heard a commotion from within the house. One officer was yelling, oh shit, Paul. And then they heard someone yell, she moved. Inside the house, an officer, as he was looking into the room where Justina was located, had seen a movement out of the corner of his eye. It was three-year-old Tabitha. She'd moved her arm. No way. Despite having suffered two blows from a tire iron to her head 15 hours prior, she was still alive. How did they know that it was a tire iron? Well, they're going to later. Oh, okay. We later know this. Gotcha, gotcha. According to later testimony from the officers from the Logan County Sheriff's Office, um, the officer said that he rushed to the girl's side. Because of her condition and injuries, he knew that he couldn't check her neck for a pulse, so he called out to her. He asked, honey, are you okay? Can you hear me? And in response, the toddler groaned in pain. Another officer rushed from the house with Tabitha in his arms and called out to paramedics who had just arrived. He was cradling her, and with everyone in just utter disbelief, he's yelling to them, she's still alive, you need to get her out of here. Like, she needed to be taken to the hospital immediately. And the three family members were rushed with relief and filled with concern all at the same time. So Nicole gets into the ambulance with her half-sister, and they are rushed off to the nearest hospital in Priora, which is 50 minutes away. That's far. It's really far. So I think after that really intense discovery scene, I think we're going to take a break to hear from our sponsor to just kind of let that soak in with us. Good idea. (laughs) Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So while... Tabitha is being taken to the nearest hospital, which, like I said, was 50 miles away. So it's it's a long drive. And she's already been sitting there for 15 hours. It's a miracle that she's alive. I mean, yeah, I'm sure she's experienced blood loss and like, you know, her life is in danger. Severe brain injury. Yeah. I think the attacker thinking that she's only three years old only struck her twice. The other members of the family had significantly more blows. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's interesting. I mean, I understand it's only, you know, she's only three, and I understand that she was still struck twice by this attacker. But some odd feeling, I, I feel like it's almost like um, it's remorse, but not enough to not attack. I don't know if that makes any sense. But no, like, it does. Like, yeah. they did it, but they did it out of necessity. Right. And then thought about not doing it any further. Yeah. Which... Could it be, you know, it could be somebody that maybe knows them. I mean, in a small town, it's kind of just, uh, it's not even, in my opinion, a shot in the dark. It's really just like a, it probably is somebody in the town. An inevitability. Yeah. Back at the scene, detectives and crime scene technicians had a lot of work to do. At first, they truly did not know what happened to the family. Now, I told you already what the murder weapon was. Um, a tire iron, but at the scene, they didn't know that. Based on the extensive wounds and the amount of blood at first, the detectives were thinking that the murder weapon was either a gun or a knife. Obviously, a gun got ruled out quickly because of the blood spatter patterns. It was more of like a, a stabbing swinging motion and not like a shot because the blood spatter looks different. It's not a spray. It was like a slash. Okay. The house was cordoned off as soon as the ambulance left, and another car arrived at the scene shortly thereafter. Before she had left the house, Nicole G. had called her husband to let him know that something bad had happened at her father's house. Well, now Chris Harris had arrived at the scene, and one of the sheriff's deputies let him know that this was the scene of a homicide, and that his wife had gone to the hospital to be with her half-sister, who had survived. He promptly left to stand vigil over Tabitha at his wife's side. As the investigators worked to process the scene so the family members that had been murdered could be moved out and autopsies could be performed, word of what happened spread like wildfire in Beeson. Everyone knew the family, and they were all devastated. Rick and Ruth were good people. Using a phrase that is mostly only used in small towns, Everyone had this to say about him. He was not a burden to anyone. He never caused any trouble. In small communities where people like order to be kept, sometimes our goodness is measured on how calm we keep things. And that was something that Rick G. definitely did. He kept a calmness about him, and he kept to himself, as did his family. He would often work with his mother's husband, or he would pick up odd contracting jobs by himself when and where he could, and he did this to support his very large family. He was quiet, he didn't start problems, and your value goes up in a small town when you're that kind of person. Oh yeah, absolutely. Although the people of Beeson knew all there was to know about the G's, the investigator did not. So the first step of the investigation would be to canvas the neighborhood and see if anyone had seen what had happened. Secondly, to question friends and family to get a better understanding of who the family was. The one thing the investigators heard about quite quickly was the growing concern that Ruth and Rick had for their son, Dylan. The boy had been in a lot of trouble lately. The teenage boy had been diagnosed with attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. He'd been recommended to go on medication, but that was medication that he had been taking, but then stopped. 
So whether this was by choice of himself or his parents or because they could just no longer afford the medication any longer, that's unknown. But he had recently gotten in trouble for stealing a razor blade from the school and then later cutting into the seats of the school bus. But it is unknown if he used the stolen razor blades to do this or what the proximity was between these two events. But he got in trouble for both. Family members told investigators that the boy would go into rages, and when he was upset, he would punch and kick the walls of his room. And this was something that investigators knew to be true because they had observed it at the crime scene. At first, they thought that there was like a massive struggle in Dylan's room, but then like when they did like the analysis of it, it was from him kicking and punching the walls. So like that's a perfect example of asking questions in the neighborhood of the family would clear that up. Yeah. Because that is what they thought. Like, what the hell happened in this room? (laughs) Right. And I think that that's an important thing to try and determine because that's going to help you figure out who the assailant is. Because if the assailant is easily going to take down Rick G, but then struggle with the 14-year-old boy, it just seems a little odd. Yeah, it does. Right. So even though there was a lot of discussion about Dylan, the investigators never asked those that they were interviewing if they thought Dylan was capable of the murders, because they themselves were unconvinced that Dylan had anything to do with it. And that was because the investigators knew the results of the autopsy report. See, everyone in the town is just assuming that this is what took place, but they know that all five G's had died of blunt force trauma from a cylindrical object we later know to be a tire iron and that they had all been beaten severely. Rick had suffered 39 impact wounds, 13 of those being dealt to his head alone. Ruth had suffered 28 blows to her body. 11-year-old Austin had been hit 21 times. And 16-year-old Justina had 15 identified injuries, according to the pathologist. Doctors at the hospital would later say that 3-year-old Tabitha had been struck twice in the head. But the reason why investigators never thought that Dylan could be the one to have done this was, despite the talk in the community that he was the one who went crazy on his family, Dylan had been struck 52 times. 52. Very interesting. Yeah, there was no way that he would have done that to himself. No. This was not a murder-suicide. But what that shows, though, then, is that he was the target, possibly. Right. Because he suffered the the most of this rage that took place in this house. Correct. That's good to know. And those numbers, we don't even know for sure. Like, they might have suffered more injuries. Later on the stand, a pathologist would say, in reality, there were too many wounds to count on the family. Like, it was hard to determine where one wound began and one ended. So, like, all of the numbers are estimated on the low end. Like, he thinks all of the members of the family were hit more than just the beginning marks that he found. So I think it's safe to say I could put a pin in here and say that he was the target. Like, I, I, I want to say okay. he's the target because of the amount of overkill sh- overkill that was done here. Um, but then it also makes you think, okay, well, he's the target. 
the father obviously got uh, got her just just as bad but it makes sense if you're trying to take out the one person that could stop you from harming the rest of the family right and his location in the house for me indicates that maybe the kids were told to go into the master bedroom with the wife and that the husband went downstairs and maybe answered a door okay because his body was like near the door wasn't correct in that by the entryway so like that makes sense but there was a knife there right there was a knife at the foot of the steps outside. Outside. Which is weird, right? Which is very strange, especially if a tire iron was used to commit these murders. So that that's a question mark for me. But pl- placement of the victims, though, I feel like that makes sense to me. He answers the door. He's confronted there. As it's taking place, at least the kids moved. Some of the kids moved into the bedroom, maybe right. with the wife. And then... That's why one was in the bathroom hiding. They were kind of hiding, waiting for huddled. the right, waiting for the husband to hopefully come out the other side of this. And I think that that's true because you would think if if someone's going to walk into a house and their their goal is to kill a family or even to get to one person of the family, the first thing you're going to do is take out the biggest threat, which would be Rick G, the father. Right, exactly. But yeah, question mark on the knife. Uh, it's a question flag for sure, but I think placement of how the murders were conducted, at least there, is probably yeah. what happened. I I also think, and this is why I wanted to cover this case because it's so fascinating. I think the reason why, through good detective work and uh, DNA and investigative technologies that we have today, it was able to be solved. But this case could have very easily become a Hinter Kafek, a Velisca Axe murders, a Ketty Cabin thing, an unknown mystery if we didn't have modern day technologies. I agree with you 100%. Because how does someone do this to an entire family? And all the bodies And I'll are... tell you it's one person. Okay. All right. We always say, how could one person have done this, right? With Velisca, yeah. with Ketty, with Hinter Kafek. There's a way. But knowing that it's one person like with modern technology makes it e- like it would make it easier like we we f- I'm sure evidence led to the fact that it's one person yes compared to back then we it's that's hard, that's a hard thing well, to do well no we it's diff- I don't want to okay stuff away. yeah too many clues don't keep be giving clues Sorry. away like that that's not good <laughs> <laughs> so when it came to what people were saying about Dylan the investigators knew it was not because they wanted to blame this boy necessarily but because they were scared This event was the single most terrifying thing that had ever happened to them. It rocked them to the core because evil was out there, out in the world. It wasn't within their tight-knit community, not within their 186 people, you know? So if Dylan, who had been acting out and showing signs of aggression, was the one who did this, he was gone. And then their problem would also be gone, you know? Right. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. The killer was still out there and was among them, which was essentially their greatest fear. Could this happen to me too? Yeah, especially in a small town. It's like, is this somebody that I talk to every day? Yeah. Am I safe when I turn my lights off and go to sleep? Like, that's that's scary. And why do people live in these small communities? Because they do want to escape the hustle and bustle and the danger of, like, that we associate with the cities. No, absolutely. 
But that doesn't mean that talking with friends and families of the G's was not helpful, because it was. The investigators learned a lot, and it didn't exactly shine the victims, meaning Ruth and Rick, in the best of lights. But before I get into this part, I want to say that victims are people, and people are not perfect. And it's sad that all too often, if a victim doesn't fall into sainthood, they're depicted as less than a victim, which, you know, will become the case here. So I'm just going to discuss what the detectives learned because it's poignant to their investigation and it helped them understand some things. But I, I just don't like... You know, in true crime, it's like, oh, they were perfect. They were amazing. How could this ever happen? You know, victims are people too. And just because some might have what others consider flaws doesn't mean that they're less of victims. I mean, it's well put. I agree. So detectives are going to learn that Rick was on hard times with his family. Work wasn't... um, as extensive as it used to be. It's 2009. So we're talking about the market crash and people weren't getting work done to their houses. Like he was doing repair work here and there, but he had a big family to support. So he did resort to selling drugs, mainly pot. And it wasn't like he was this like huge dealer. He would just really sell to like friends and family. Small time. In addition to that, he and Ruth enjoyed um, a swinging lifestyle. They enjoyed having sex with other people. They participated in um, this swinging lifestyle, which is a sexual preference, which both of them consented to. But this is going to not only be a point of contention during the trial, but it's going to also make investigators think, okay, well, these are also two potential reasons why harm could have befallen the family. Well, with with what you just said, I mean, I think about this. It just made this whole thing a lot more muddier because, I mean, let's face it. What are the three things that always cause passionate or, or a crime of passion, let's say? Uh, I don't know, money? Uh, I don't know, sex? Drugs? These are all things that could all three result yeah. in why this family was harmed if he's selling drugs even even if as small time as you mention as you claim um that could still go down a very bad road if someone's addicted and and wants more and doesn't have the money um if they're swinging um i don't i don't really have to spell that much out for you guys but if they're swinging it maybe there was more going on than just swinging and it was more a relationship based and and maybe someone found out you know, right. like all these things could be factors as to why it was so violent, I- violent and insane, you know? Yeah. And I, it also could be um, detectives were also thinking along the lines of what you just said, but also like sometimes within these swing communities, what if one partner is, doesn't know? And then what happens is like they find out and then get upset. Right. Exactly. And, like, you destroyed my family. So I'm going to destroy, I'm destroy yours. yours. Oh, and lastly, he could have owed someone money, whether it was to pay for to keep up his just current life, his average lifestyle, or maybe this small town time drug operation that he right. was running. Maybe he owed money from buying product. 
Correct. So these are all factors that make this insanely hard. Right. It makes it hard. It doesn't make like what they were doing. Obviously, don't sell drugs, kids. I mean, like that's not what we're advocating here. But I mean, the fact that this is their their sexual lifestyle and this is their preference, that's they're two consenting adults. So there's nothing wrong with it. But it it doesn't mean that what they're doing is wrong. It just means that they're lifestyle brings them from a low risk to now, like I would say, like medium or high risk victims where we say that they're more capable of falling victims to crimes if you're dealing drugs from your home and potentially inviting strangers into your house. You're opening your door for something to possibly happen. Right. You know, and also, lastly, before we continue, I wanted to throw one more theory out there. The uh, the kid, oh my God, uh, Dylan, right? Yes, 14. So, as someone who was 14, playing video games like a fiend, I mean, I know this might sound at first like it's so far out there, like, John, why would you even say this? But, I mean, he's probably playing video games online, you know, talking, you know, smack talking shit. John, are you going to say that somebody's going to seek retribution for shit talking on video games? I know you think that that's crazy, but you never know. I mean, he could have slipped and told somebody, like, you know, where he's located um, or something. And I don't know. He could have pissed somebody off online. I mean, you really have to understand that these online communities, they're vast. And you never know what could happen. Yeah. And in 2009, it was new. It was starting to pick up. Yeah. You didn't understand the dangers of some of it. Exactly. I mean, you never know. So I I know that one's probably a little far out there, but I think it's worth a mention. Okay. All right. Right. I really do think that that's something that could come up later. All right, we'll we'll, we'll note it. Okay, I'm noting it. <laughs> so this information that they learned about the G family, they learned from a woman named Natalie Klein. And Natalie Klein was someone who lived within Beeson and was close with the family. The information that Natalie had was important because she had been in communication with the Gs the night of their murder. She told detectives that she had participated in threesomes with the couple and that there were times that her long-term boyfriend also participated. She later went on to say that the G's had also met other couples and had them over their house. And she also knew that they had had couples visit their home that were from four different states. Okay. So people from like kind of they would meet online i guess i would assume and then they would come and visit okay so now this is multi-state now yes so it is a little far reaching more than we might have thought yes so this came into play because this is what natalie had been communicating with the g's about it was easiest for klein to communicate with the g's through instant messages because she's partially deaf the couple communicated with her about her coming over to their house to smoke pot and potentially engage in like sexual interactions once all of the children were asleep. It was back and forth regarding whether or not Natalie was going to come over to their house. She had three kids of her own and the kids were not going to sleep and her boyfriend was not home, so she didn't want to leave them on their own. She shared her communications with the detectives and this is going to be helpful because it gives them a timeline. At 1021, Natalie wrote, oh, I'm sorry, she has four children, not three. I'm wrong. She wrote, got three down and one to go. And Rick responded, won't be long here now, in reference to his kids also going to sleep. 
They had small talk back and forth, and at 12.37 a.m., Natalie said to them, Damn, I'm starving, lol. There's nothing to eat in this house. Rick G. responded, Hmm, that sucks when that happens. At 12.41 a.m., Natalie responded back, Yes, it does. Immediately, but she doesn't receive a reply. At 1.04 a.m., she sent another message saying that if she didn't stop smoking pot, that she would end up eating some weird food and some weird combinations. And to this, she also received no reply. Confused as to why the communication stopped, she wrote, You still alive over there? At 1.45 a.m. Ooh, so that's eerie. Very eerie. So I'm sorry. What was the what was the last thing he responded to? What time was that? The last response that he gave was at 12:41 a.m. when he said, "Like, hmm, hate when that happens." So it's actually kind of corro- uh, corroborates what I think investigators or the family. I can't remember which one said it, but that it mostly happened at night based on what they were wearing. Yeah, that's what William yeah. observed when he first saw the bodies because, like, it seemed like the kids were preparing for bed. So this is important because it gave investigators a timeline and potential motives. They know the murder took place after 1241 a.m. And maybe it could be drug related because it was like in the middle of the night. But that was ruled out pretty quickly because when they questioned the family more, Rick really was small time. Like the only people that he sold pot to was friends and family. He didn't owe anyone money. Nobody owed him money. It was a very kind of casual thing. The swinging thing, though, could be a possibility. So they keep an open mind. Could someone have been mad about it, found out their partner was involved? Did emotions get involved? They didn't know. So in addition to the timeline, this was helpful because they had searched the crime scene and didn't find a computer. So Natalie said she communicates with them. They have a a laptop that they keep in the living room, but it wasn't at the scene. So it seemed that Rick's laptop had been stolen from the house. Weird, odd thing to just take. That is that is weird. Almost like, well, could it have to do with there being more on it? Maybe more chat logs or something of that nature then. Potentially maybe pictures or something. Something, yeah. In addition to the missing laptop, other clues were found at the scene of the crime. Two very important clues. One was a bloody handprint on the countertop in one of the bathrooms, and the other was a clear footprint outside of the house in the dirt. The print was left by a K-Swiss sneaker. They had very distinctive tread patterns and a heavy rubber bottom, so it left a strong impression in the dirt. That's pretty cool that they actually picked up on that. Yes. And they they didn't find any case with shoes within the home, so they know it didn't belong to any of the family members. The detectives also worked out another theory based on the crime scene. There was a lot of blood outside of the house leading from the front door, but all of the victims were found inside the home. Because of this, they theorized that the killer must have injured themselves during the murders and their blood may have mingled within the stains on the front porch and on the steps. Because of this, investigators, when speaking with the media and the public, they told everyone to be on the lookout for people that had cuts, bruises, or any kind of 
unexplained injuries to them. They they were thinking, how could someone not harm themselves in the commissioner? Like these, the people had to have fought back. Yes, someone in that house must have. So the investigators also followed up on this theory themselves when they checked every hospital within a 200-mile radius. But according to their records, no one had gotten treatment for wounds that would have been sustained during an attack like that. The next thing they do is they canvass the neighborhood again, but this time with a further radius. That meant talking to more neighbors, which also is going to aid in the fueling of rumors, as you can imagine, But the rumors were kind of inevitable as, you know, time went on, because this is a few days into the investigation. um, Word about how extensive the wounds and injuries were to the victim made everyone super nervous because this was such a violent crime. So, of course, that's going to fuel a lot of speculation. Yeah, and it's like everyone is on edge. Like if someone sees something with a bandage or, a, you know, yeah. something on, they're going to be like, he, they did it. It's like almost like a witch hunt if they find somebody that like matches that description right. kind of. But luckily they had gained a lead out of it. One man who lived down the road from the G's remembered seeing something strange around midnight. He said that he had been smoking on his front porch when he saw a pickup truck go by that he had never seen before. And for Beeson, that was abnormal, especially at that time of night. He said that the truck was gray and that it had large exhaust pipes midway through the truck bed. And this is a unique quality. And he would have known a truck. Like, if someone drove a truck that had something unique on it, everyone in town would know that's this person's truck. But he had never seen that before. So... That's why he said he took a second look at it because he goes, oh, that's weird. I never saw a truck that had the exhaust like that. Side pipes, you mean? Yeah, I I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, side pipes actually. It looks like an organ coming out of the. No, stop it. It's it's side side pipes. And uh, yeah, that actually is rare and most likely custom because most trucks don't come that way. Right. So based on the conversation that the G's had been having with Natalie Klein, the truck's appearance did occur around the same time that the murders took place. So the driver of the truck could be their murderer. This was something that was embraced by the town. Because although it's scary to think that a monster rolled into town and did this, it's a lot less scarier than thinking that the monster was one of them. So they were like, yep, probably an outsider. And they really kind of jumped on this theory about what the man said about the gray truck. I mean, it is really good information if it was used in the crime. Right. I mean, then it's great information about the truck. Very lucky that that man was out on his porch at that time. The investigators had the neighbor work with a sketch artist and sketches of the truck were distributed. And as soon as they distributed these truck sketches... Leads poured in from everywhere, like as far as Washington, D.C. And the police, eager to solve this brutal murder, really followed up on every single one of those leads, but they all led nowhere. At this point in the investigation, the detectives were getting frustrated, but the one thing that kept them going was the fact that there was a three-year-old girl fighting hard to recover from her injuries in the hospital a girl who was counting on them to figure out who had done this to her and her family. While visiting Tabitha in the hospital soon after the truck sketch was released, the detectives wanted to talk to Nicole G. 
she had been less than a mile away. Now, they knew at this point that she had not committed the murders because she had a verified alibi. She working nights so she can spend the day with her um, newborn. She had a verified alibi at the time of the attack. So they knew that it wasn't Nicole G. So they knew that they could trust her. But the detectives had questions about her husband, Chris Harris. Nicole had explained when they first talked that she and Harris had been separated for a while, but they were trying to make things work again for their two children, one of them only being two months old. But they had learned from others in the community and other members of the G family that the relationship ending had not been as smooth as that. The couple had always been on again, off again. And it had been that way since they started dating when they were 15 years old. So 15 years of tumultuous relationship. They were basically in a constant state of turmoil. At this point, the police were looking for anyone that might have a problem with the G family. And they couldn't imagine Nicole's family being okay with such a toxic relationship, especially now that they're bringing another grandchild into the the picture. So that makes them want to question Chris Harris. Harris said that he was living currently with his brother Jason, that he and Nicole decided that they should kind of live separate for a little while while the two of them were sorting things out and talking about getting back together because it would put less pressure on them. He said that he was home with his brother the night of the murder. They also asked Harris if he would mind showing them his hands, arms, take his shirt off so they could examine him for any wounds. Because remember, they're working off the theory that their killer had been bleeding or injured. And Harris had no wounds or bruising on his body at all. Next, the detectives want to confirm his alibi and his brother Jason and Jason's um, girlfriend confirmed that Chris Harris was home with them the whole time. I feel like that's not, a for me, and it's not enough uh, of a good alibi just because, I mean, for all we know, they could be covering for him. Or they could all be uh, responsible it. for it. Yeah, you know, so I don't know. <laughs> we have seen people be in different states and then some fly back under different aliases. And yeah, yeah, I mean, crazier things have happened. <laughs> Alibis are always wild. So this leads us to September 23rd. It has been 48 hours since the discovery of the bodies, and there were a lot of clues, but really no suspects. The police had been worried that three-year-old Tabitha was still in danger. Although she had a long road to recovery, she had survived, and maybe she might remember who did this to her when she comes to. They feared that the killer would come back and kill her so she could never reveal their identity. It sounds like the plot to a movie, but it has happened before. So in addition to that, during an investigation, it's always good to be close to the family, and family kept going to visit Tabitha. So if they had an officer always listening in to what the family was saying, that's good insight as well. Right, and also that she's under some sort of protection. Right. So an officer was stationed outside of her hospital room 24 hours a day. Nicole, when she was not working, was always at the hospital with her half-sister. 
she had agreed to step in as guardian for her and take custody of the three-year-old girl. That was nice. Yes. So next to her always was Chris Harris. He was trying to be supportive as possible. But on that day, when an officer was leaving because it had been a shift change, he got into the elevator with Chris Harris, and he noticed something interesting. He was wearing the same brand of K-Swiss shoes that they had been looking for, and it was the exact shoe that left the impression in the dirt outside of the G's home. Well... That is remarkable uh, <laughs> observation. Yeah, it's a um, good job. But I, but I will tell you that if that guy is wearing those shoes that he used to commission this murder, then he is a very foolish individual, a dumb idiot. <laughs> you know, right? Because no, I mean, you could just put on another set of shoes. You know, right? We have to think they're also very popular shoes to be had, and when you're looking at things from an investigative standpoint, even if it matches, it's going to be really hard to prove because, of course, Chris Harris goes over to his father-in-law's house. That's true. But, I mean, if there was blood on the bottom of the shoe, they can test it with luminol to see if there is. That's true. They can test the shoe. They could just test mm-hmm. the shoe. I mean, and then you'll know right away. Mm-hmm. So because of the shoes, he's asked to come in for more questioning to the police station. <laughs> okay. When he gets there, they have a detective go out and search the truck that he came in with. The truck is gray, and it matches the description of the truck seen by the neighbor. However, there's no unique, what do you call them? Side pipes? Side pipes. And the neighbor said, was insistent on there being side pipes, but there wasn't any. And I can't imagine that's a job you can easily undo. I mean, you'd be surprised. I mean, I mean, not not to fo- spoil your uh, theory or whatever, yeah. but I mean, you technically could do it if you had a, a, a car jack. You go underneath it, it, you unbolt the clamps, you could remove the side the side pipes. Okay. But and if you did that, though, then that it would just be, uh, uh, it would have like essentially you wouldn't have any mufflers, you wouldn't see anything. It would just be really loud. Okay. You could take section of your exhaust off. So that's not like I'm sure a crazy they, thing to do. But they would be able to examine that and determine that the side pipes had been taken off. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, unless they took them off and then put something else back on. I mean, I'm just saying there's ways to do it that isn't too complicated. Okay. Because once again. You'd be able to do it in two days? Oh, yeah. I could okay. probably do it in one night. And, and, and not only that, but remember what I said. Side pipes are custom most of the time. That's not just something a, car, a truck comes with. So if it's custom, that means that they had to have taken the the original, the ODM, OEM parts off of the car. Okay. So if they took the side pipes off and the pipes that make it go side to the sides, they take it off. They could put the, the, the stock version back on. And make it look like And make normal. it look like it's normal. So it's, that's not a hard thing to do. I could do that in a few hours. Okay. Um, right. Also, you have to remember, trucks. some trucks have... Um, I, I can't remember what, um, like a step up, like this, you know, like, you know what I'm talking about, like those little step ups. Yes, I need them. Well, those little step ups could also be like, I mean, from, I mean, how far are we talking about? Like it could be, oh yeah, I saw side pipes, but it could have just been those, uh, those bottom guard pieces to step up. No, it was like really tall coming out of the bed of the truck. Oh, oh, that changes everything. Okay. Yeah. I feel like you weren't listening to what I was saying. Okay. So. 
This but guys, still- this is welcome to our relationship. <laughs> well, okay. Some people. It's not pipes on the side of the truck. It's the ones that come out and look like organs, like like a smokestack. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, that's also custom. So that, I mean, I guess with a little engineering, if there was more than one person involved in removing it, I mean, I guess you could. Okay, but, but that also that's a is, lot. That's a lot, be a lot of that's work. That's a lot more to do than side pipes. Right. Well, regardless. Okay. I give people a history lesson. I <laughs> yeah, get, a history or, lesson. You no, mean like a car lesson? A car lesson. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So I'm glad we're on the same page, though. I, I'm I'm with you now. Smokestack. So that, but most people do that if it's a diesel truck. Okay. So that's actually something that I would have been uh, put onto. Okay, if it's a smokestack kind of exhaust, then most likely this is a diesel truck, a diesel, you know. Uh, uh, but this wasn't a diesel truck. This was just a regular truck. Really? Yes. That that Chris Harris has. I'm, I don't know about the one that this man saw. Oh, man, well, then he doesn't know what he's doing. Okay. Because when you, you know, you want the smokestack when you have a diesel. But he doesn't have a diesel is what I'm saying. I know. Okay. So now they're going to, while they're looking at his truck outside, they're going to ask him if he would be willing to give a DNA sample, fingerprints, both of which he gave willingly. And then they also ask him to have his shoes. So he was wearing the K-Swiss shoes to the station, and he said yes. Now, the shoes looked really clean, um, and they did a shoe comparison with the mold they had taken from the shoe print that was left at the house. And they did the luminol test, no blood on the shoes. Okay. They tested it, and Harris's shoe size was bigger than the print that was left. Bigger? Bigger. Okay. So that was weird. And they were like, the clues are there. Like, his truck looks similar to the truck that was seen. He's wearing the same shoes, but there's no blood on it, and they're bigger. Like, it's like the clues are there, but they're not there. Right. They were a little frustrated, but um, they had nothing to really hold him on, so they had to let him go. I mean, they got his DNA in the fingerprinting, which is going to be helpful, and they're going to compare to the palm print. Right. So another week goes by and the police were following up on all the leads they could, but they were still getting nowhere. And their relationship with the family, especially with Nicole, was strained because she and her husband felt like he was being unjustly targeted by them. Nicole was very adamant that Chris had not killed her family. And she was very vocal about this on all of her social media pages. She felt like they were being really unfair to Chris. But she did not have a choice in changing her opinion on that matter. When in the middle of the night on September 30th, 2009, detectives from the Logan County Sheriff's Department came to her door asking for 30-year-old Chris Harris. When he came to the door, he was placed on arrest for the murders of the G family an attempted murder of Tabitha G. I mean, that's that's kind of crazy. Okay, what did they find? The results of the fingerprinting had come back. It had been Harris's bloody palm print that was found on the countertop of the bathroom sink. He had been there that night with blood on his hands. Okay. I mean, I mean, that's enough to bring him in. Yes. For sure. 
Yes. Because, I mean, it shows that he was there Mm -hmm. and that he knows more than he has been telling. Correct. So while Harris was being booked at the station, other officers from the sheriff's department were executing a search warrant on his property. In the back of the house, out beyond the detached garage, they found a weight rack that, if placed in the bed of Harris's truck, could look like exhaust pipes. (laughs) okay see i knew it no right guy in his mind would put smokestacks on a non-diesel truck there you go see so the name what the neighbor saw he was just confused about it was dark it was midnight he's been smoke i don't know what he was smoking (laughs) something good maybe not cigarettes (laughs) smoking something good and in the bed of jason's truck so now chris harris's brother Mm mm-hmm they find Rick and Ruth's laptop computer. Oh, jeez. Okay. That's the property from the house. Right. So the serial numbers match the computer, and clearly it was just their computer. You could tell by opening it. Wild. Right? This is interesting, but I feel like we're missing something here. Something's not yep. Something's not right. So a week later, 22-year-old Jason was arrested on charges of obstruction of justice for not telling police the truth and for lying to them about his brother's alibi. After his arrest, Jason refused to speak with investigators, so to put extra pressure on him, they also arrested his girlfriend and his girlfriend's mother. Oh, my God. Hey, well, we got to find out information somehow. Well, they yeah, they were involved in the false alibi, technically, yeah. so it's also obstruction of justice. But while Jason is not talking, his brother Chris sure is. Of course especially after the district attorney explained to him the time he was facing for five counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. Chris Harris, with his lawyer present, said that he was ready to talk about what happened on the night of September 20th. He started off by explaining to the detective that Dylan was very troubled and that he had been for as long as he could remember. Remember, now, Chris has been in the picture even before Dylan was born. Right. Because they had started dating 15 years prior and Dylan's 14. So he met the G family when Ruth was pregnant with Dylan. So he said that Dylan had a lot of anger and aggression issues and he would fly into violent ranges. He said that the family was always nervous that he was going to snap. And on that night, he did. Harris said that he had gone over to his father-in-law's house to see if he could buy some pot from him. And instead of walking into a warm welcome, which he usually received, he walked into a scene from a horror movie. He said there was blood everywhere, and he was confused. He saw Rick on the ground, and at first his mind registered that maybe he was sleeping. He walked further into the house, and that's when he saw Ruth in the master bedroom And when he walked into the room to see if she was okay, he then saw Austin in the bathroom. He checked on the boy, and after checking to see if he had a pulse, he put his hand on the countertop to steady himself. He said he had blood all over himself, and to basically take in the scene around him. While standing there in the bathroom doorway, he heard a creak in the floorboards behind him. And he quickly turned around and saw Dylan standing there. He had a knife in his hand. 
Remember the knife by the stairs? Yes. He said the two got into a fight and he killed Dylan in self-defense. The police asked why, if this was true, didn't you just tell us this from the beginning? And he said he didn't want to get involved. He didn't want to have to explain this to them. He feared that they wouldn't believe them. And he also didn't want to have to explain this to his ex-wife slash current wife because of all the complications they had. And they were trying to start their family again. And he's like, this would just destroy us and we would never be together. So that's why he said he never came forward. I, I don't know, man. Listen. There's a few questions we have to ask ourselves here. First, could a 14-year-old really take over everyone in that house? Right? That's the first thing. The second thing is, if that is indeed true, self-defense 52 plus times, it doesn't seem right. Wow. And he's 30 years old? Yes. You're going to tell me that a 30-year-old man is going to have that much of a struggle with a 14-year-old boy? Yeah, like where was the anger and aggression at doing that to Dylan? It doesn't make any sense. What this proves to me is that he's way deeper and way more involved than he's, you know, talking about. This story is just to try to make himself look innocent or, you know, more innocent than what's what the evidence is suggesting. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like he knows, okay, the evidence knows that I was there. I can't really refute that fact, but I could kind of put off the fact that I was doing it in self-defense and one thing led into another. That's that's BS. Okay. It just does none of it makes sense. Well, the police felt the same way you did. Cuz after the interview ended, the police really in their discussion said it just doesn't make sense. We're not buying anything that he's saying. You know, then how was there blood outside? Nothing he said led to the fact that there would be blood outside. Um, Also, they know the knife isn't the murder weapon. So that's bizarre. So Dylan couldn't have done it. And if he did do it, he would have had a cylindrical object in his hand, like a tire iron and not a knife. Right. Because all the other, they were all killed with the same murder weapon. So that doesn't make sense. And if Harris is claiming he killed Dylan... And they knew he was beaten with an object, hit 52 times at least. Then where was that object? Did Harris bring it into the house with him? Did he find it in the house? And why was it not in the house when they did the crime scene investigation? So, like, none of this was making sense. None of it makes sense. And the only thing that I could think of about the blood outside is... It's too much blood to actually be like a wound that you would walk away from. Yeah. So I know you said one person, but could it be two people that after striking somebody like the husband, let's say, for example, because he was the closest to the front of the door, could it be that he was beaten outside and then the body was picked up right away after the beating and then replaced in the house? Well, that wouldn't really make sense. Why would you... Bring someone out, then bring them back in. Bring them in so no one else sees if someone's passing through, just like the guy smoking out on the porch. Oh, like you're saying he got first killed on the porch. Correct. Okay. Well, there were still a lot of questions about the crime scene and why it looked the way it did, but they knew that the story that Chris Harris was telling them just didn't add up. Right. They knew it wasn't true. On October 10th, Chris Harris was formally indicted 
on over 50 charges, including five counts of first-degree murder. When Jason saw what his brother was facing, and they knew that because he would be considered an accomplice, he was facing the same, and he knew his girlfriend and her mother were also on the hook for the same thing, and because he knew he would be screwed because the victim's computers were in the back of his truck bed, he decided that he was going to cooperate with the state against his brother to help save himself and his girlfriend. And the story Jason has to tell is not at all what Chris Harris said happened. And it's chilling. Are you ready for what really happened? Um, yeah, I want to know right now. <laughs> On the night of September 20th, Jason had gone out drinking with his older brother, Chris. I just don't understand. Like, why was everyone up so late on a Sunday? Does somebody have work? I found that weird. But anyway, okay, <laughs> sorry. That's what I was like. I was like, what? You know Sunday, what? guys, go it, to bed. You know, maybe they worked a night shift, maybe. maybe. Who knows? Maybe. Who knows? Well, they went out to a bar and they were there for a while. Then they decided to leave, but bought some beers to continue drinking on their drive back into town. Perfect. Safe. The brothers drove around town drinking beers. And this must have been when the man saw them driving around town. The weight rack was just recently purchased, so I'm sure they went to go pick it up with the pickup truck and just hadn't unloaded it yet. Okay, that makes sense now. While they were doing this... Chris Harris, despite trying to work things out with Nicole, who had just given birth to his child, was trying to call women to see if he would be able to come over and sleep with them. He was having no luck. That was when Chris said to Jason that he was going to head over to Rick's house because lately he felt like 16-year-old Justina had been looking at him weird, like she was coming on to him. Not only is this man 30, and she's 16, this is his wife's half-sister. So was his plan to just go over to his father-in-law's house and be like, hey, I want to sleep with your other daughter? It's very strange. I, I, I don't even know if being intoxicated, like, these thoughts would even happen. Like, what? In like, any normal person's mind. That's so minds. strange. Yeah, I don't know. So Jason said that he wasn't going to say anything to interfere at this point because his no, he knew his brother had been drinking. He just let his brother do what he wanted. He seemed like he was hell-bent on something, so he was kind of just letting it go. So he was complacent in statutory rape or rape. When they pulled up to the G family home, the truck was parked directly in front of the house, so the headlights shone on the front door. I'm just giving you the scene here. Jason told Chris that he was going to stay in the truck, and Chris said, okay. Jason said he thought it was weird that Chris went and grabbed a tire iron before even entering the home of the G's. That's all that's weird, Jason? There's a lot wrong here. There's a, a lot weird here. Yeah. Okay. First, that he's even going to go do this. Yeah. Basically, rape his 16 year old sister in law. Um, and the fact that he goes and gets a tire iron before he even goes in the house shows that he is pre planning and contemplating violence happening, taking place. Or he knows a confrontation is going to happen when he goes in that house. Yeah. And tries to do what he wants to do. That's pretty scary. Jason said that soon after his brother went into the house, 
he heard all hell break loose. He heard screaming, screaming and a lot of movement. It sounded to him like a bowling ball had been dropped, and then he heard the screaming of a woman. And this was all within the first three minutes of his brother walking into the home. Shortly after the woman began screaming, Jason, still sitting in the passenger seat of the truck, saw a window to the house open. Next, he saw 14-year-old Dylan crawl out and stumble around the yard. He had gotten out. He seemed injured. But he didn't run away. After hearing more screaming inside the house, Dylan, instead of running away, ran back inside the front door to help his family. The attack continued. Jason heard all of it. A few minutes later, a very injured Dylan came back out of the front door trying to get away from Chris Harris, who was behind him holding up a bloodied tire iron. He struck the boy with it, causing him to fall just beyond the front steps of the home and drop a knife that he had in his hand. The boy fell right in front of Jason and he saw his brother bring down the tire iron again and again. After Chris was done, he went back into the house to finish what he had been in the middle of, killing the rest of the family. So it seemed like he killed Rick G at first and then was incapacitating the other victims and then going back to them. Right. And that's how he was able to gain control over all of them. It also explains how there was blood in the front then. And the knife. Correct. Jason watched on and then he was shocked. Dylan popped up again. He wasn't dead. He looked for a second and made direct eye contact with Jason. Hearing more screams, he went back inside to try and protect his siblings. Twice he could have run away. The kid that everyone blamed for these murders. Twice. Yeah. And he went in to save his family. Twice. Yeah. That poor kid and that family. That's unbelievable. And they were they were blaming him like, oh, Dylan's going to go crazy. He's going to snap. At the end, he tried to save them. Yeah. He was the hero. Mm-hmm. That's Chris, really sad. Yeah, I know. It's Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> it's okay. Chris Harris walked out of the front door of the home, leaving devastation in his wake. And he got back into the pickup truck. In his hands, he had the family's computer. We don't know why he took it, and the tire iron. They drove away from the house in silence. On the way back to Jason's house, Chris threw the murder weapon and his bloodied K-Swiss sneakers out of the window. The detectives were shocked. If Jason didn't tell them this, they would have never understood or been able to put the clues together. Because like you said, the blood outside and the knife outside just didn't make sense. Yeah. They would have never been able to connect this. And that's how it would have become a Ketty murder situation or a Velisca or a Hinter Kafek because the clues were there, but none of them added up. But Jason put them all together. And a lot of this information wasn't released to the public. So it's not like Jason knew what the clues were and then he laced them together, Jason it was the one who connected them without knowing what the police knew. 
Yeah, I mean, this is wild. Um, I, I just, I just think like, what a coward though, both of these brothers are because one for committing such a heinous act and and in the most brutal fashion possible Correct. against not just adults but children no less um but also for this other brother just watching on and not do anything i'm sorry i understand he's your brother and i get that i get that but there's no excuse for this i mean this is beyond trying to protect and cover for something that's like a small issue and i get also being scared though like holy shit what is this guy doing i get that but then the next day go right to police do you know what i mean yeah like, i he, mean i get he it should get have it. done something because even the police are gonna say all he had to do was call us the next day yeah, I mean, if you were afraid it's, for your well-being that night as well. Right, because think about it. This guy's having a psychotic break. Right, so then that morning you call. Like, there's just no excuse. That's why it's right. it's cowardice. Correct. It, it really is cowardice. And to watch on knowing what you know and not let anyone know is horrible. And to know that a 14-year-old has more guts than you than do. Than you do, yes. Guts is a nice way to put it. I was going to yeah. say something else, but yes. I know. <laughs> uh, that's a good way to uh, a good way to put it. And, you know, it it it's weird. It's like, okay, so maybe Chris Harris took the computer to make it look like it had been some sort of robbery so it could be connected with Rick selling drugs. Or they even thought that their sexual lifestyle had something to do with it. Like, if Jason never said this, they would have never known. If he didn't leave that palm print, they would have never got him. There's a lot that it could have been blamed on, and he knew that. Yeah. You know I what I'm saying? So. And um, it's crazy that it, it hadn't been a stranger. It had been a monster in their midst their whole lives. And now the police were thinking, did Chris Harris stand vigil over Tabitha with Nicole, not to help or be there for his wife, but to see if the little girl ever regains consciousness? Was she going to tell on him? He wanted to be there for it. Would he have stopped her? That's you know that's a good possibility. They were if protecting he, her from the person who did it, and he was yes, there the whole there. time. Yeah, that's really scary. Uh, you know, I'm trying to like focus a little bit on like motive though, because like I understand people do snap, but there needs to be a catalyst for that to take place. It's weird because it seems like there's truly no motive that this man was drunk, wanted to sleep with someone. Every girl was denying him, most likely for a reason, because he's a loser, and. He thought, well, I'll take it from from Justina. Please tell me, though. There was no sexual assault. Okay, yeah. good. I mean, that's still horrible. They're all murdered, and it's disgusting. But, I mean, that makes it a little bit yeah. easier to digest. But, um, you know, I was thinking the, one of the reasons that I could see him doing it is because, no, he was married to the woman, right? Yes, he was married to Nicole Jane. Okay, so, like, could it be just every attempt that he was making to try to maybe get back with her or make things right again. Maybe he was like, angry with her yeah, and, and took, it, took out it out on her family. On the one thing that he knew that she, she would care about. Right. Because it seems like she was kind of just moving on and, you know, trying to take care of her children. Exactly. That that could be a motive, potentially. It's weird because there really truly is nothing. And there there is no clear answer to that question. They try to figure it out, but it just seems like this man just did it. And yeah. maybe he always felt this way about the family. But you know what? 
regardless of of the motive. Like uh, you know, the the best part about it is we we know who did it and we have him right, right where we want him now. So well, there's a big problem. Oh no. Okay. Jason, they needed to count on to be their star witness, right? Because he's the one saying everything. But Jason had been charged with perjury in his past, meaning he'd lied on the witness stand before. So they hoped that the, they knew that in cross-examination he'd get slammed with that. So they're questioning his credibility now. Right. So that they would Ugh. just have to hope that the jury would, would believe him. Okay. So to confirm the story, they're like, okay, we know that they might not believe Jason's story, but what if we can confirm it? What if we can corroborate it? And they know the one way they could do that is if they find the murder weapon and shoes where Jason said they would be, like where Chris threw them out of the truck. And luckily, they found them both. The shoes that had been tossed had been the correct size of the shoe print made. You know that Chris Harris went out the next day and bought the same exact pair of sneakers in half a size bigger. Right. So he was thinking of how to cover it up. Yep. Um, in case they were ever tested, obviously. And that's where they found the tire iron with all the blood on it and hair and bone fragments. And that's when they knew that the tire iron was the weapon. Jason agreed to testify to all of this if he was given a 20-year sentence because that was the minimum. Wow. For obstruction of justice and all that he did. Okay. So the trial of Chris Harris began on May 8th, 2013. The trial was a fascinating one for the people of Logan County who heard lurid details about the G family, their past, their sexual proclivities, and just what it had been like to discover the bodies and then later work the investigation. But what was most disturbing were the crime scene photos and the description the pathologist gave of the horrific injuries and pain that the family suffered during the attack. It was truly shocking. The prosecution did a great job lining up all of the evidence, bringing Jason onto the stand to tell the story of what happened and then corroborate his story with physical details from the scene, and to tell the story of the G family as the victims they truly were not the scandalous family the defense was making them out to be. And finally explaining that justice needed to be sought, not just for the family that had been slaughtered, but for the one member of the household that survived. Let that girl be able to sleep at night, knowing the monster that did this to her and her family could never hurt her again. Isn't that what she deserved? The defense took the low road defaming every member of the family they could. They had Natalie Klein on the stand and made her admit to her sexual history with the family, which was mortifying and embarrassing for her, too. And they had many witnesses attest to the behavior of Dylan, because that's what they were still going with. Harris's initial story, that Dylan had done it and he had killed Dylan in self-defense. And one of the reasons they went with this, too, I think, is because Harris concocted this story not just from, not just like by himself. Remember, when the family was initially found, everyone thought it was Dylan. So he thought it's not going to be too hard of a stretch to make people believe that it was. 
based on the history of the boy because people believed him at first to be the murderer when in fact he was the hero of the whole story um and they were it was terrible they talked about um his violent rages incidents that happened at school um people attest to how he was violent and withdrawn and how Dylan was and then they blame the family. Dylan was in a rage because of how he was being raised by his parents who sold drugs and had sex with other people while the kids were in their bedrooms. Like they made the family out to be something that they weren't. And it was really sad and disgusting because in reality, they're the victims here. Yeah. And I think that the jury was not tricked by this. And they were smart enough to, to look at the defense team and be like, how dare you do that? which is good. And they were just very unconvinced. It took not a long time to for them to to come back. And on May 30th, 2013, Chris Harris hung his head as the judge read that he was guilty of all of the charges brought against him. Five counts of first degree murder, armed robbery, home invasion, aggravated battery to a child, and attempted murder. The sentencing was more of a formality, because in the state of Illinois, the killing of more than two people requires a mandatory life sentence. But on July 19th of the same year, he was sentenced to five life sentences, plus 80 years for the additional charges. Jason Harris received 20 years. Tabitha G. survived the massacre of her family. Doctors had to remove um, and then later replace sections of her skull to allow her brain to swell from its injuries. It took two months, but she was finally able to leave the hospital and go home with Nicole. The Logan County Sheriff's Department celebrated her fourth birthday with her months later. Aww. And it would be really hard for Nicole and her now three children to move on from what happened. But Nicole and Tabitha together are trying the best that they can. And they're doing a fantastic job. That is wild, this whole entire thing and how like it affected this whole entire family because they were so tight-knit, especially, you know? Yeah. Um, and the whole community because yeah. they were so interwoven within the community. Yeah. I mean, I'm really glad that like she recovered and everything's fine and... She has a place at least to call home with relatives and stuff. But how sad, how sad that is that someone would go to do that. I am actually so glad that he received five life sentences because yeah. he literally snuffed out um, a family that he knew. And, and all five of those people are so gone. Sad. Life to live, just gone. And I think that it is so good that they were able to catch him because because the clues didn't really make sense. And you could see how they couldn't and how they weirdly connected once Jason told the story and they found out who it was. But they would be searching for the wrong truck forever, the wrong shoe size forever. It could have very easily become a cold case, an unsolved murder. And that is another example of why eyewitness testimony is so unreliable at times right. and that only certain like certain things can be taken and others taken with a grain of salt. Correct. You know, like, yeah, they, he got the whole gray truck right, but, I mean, it didn't have the pipes and all the other things that he thought he saw. 
it's that that's always very difficult when you know you saw that you have someone that saw it but cannot like 100 percent id something exactly so it's a wild case wild case and it's really sad i'm glad there is some life that comes out of this but how brutal and and like you said, there being no motive makes it even scarier. Yeah, that someone could just snap and just kill an entire just family. Do that. And I think I want to say at the end of this that I know we said it, but I'll say it again. I, you know, Dylan, this fourteen-year-old kid. I mean, what courage! Um, in 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 a moment where everything that you know is 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 changing, and 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 in that moment had the wherewithal to to do like, okay, my dad is probably dead i need to defend my family that is unbelievable courage and unbelievable like thought process at 14 to and to, to do, do that it twice yeah he could have ran away twice but didn't yeah i and i i can't even believe that most people would just run it's exactly and then the fact that the community looked down on him for struggling at 14 years old who's not struggling at 14 years old especially when he's dealing with a diagnosis of adhd and maybe his family can't afford the medication right and and, and you know what honestly like i and maybe this isn't the truth but I, it makes me feel better because i think it makes his character uh we we, we can paint his character in a better light because uh, i'm sure it's not talked about is you know what his little quote-unquote rages I mean, if he was playing video games, people get heightened, they get crazy, they right. start yelling. <laughs> like John does. Like I do, you know? So, yeah, you know what? Maybe he He's wasn't as bad 14. as they make him seem. You know, he was 14 years old, still finding himself, still growing. Yeah, Leave him alone. going through hormonal changes. Yeah. That's just what happens. Exactly. Well, I'm glad we justice for Dylan. Justice for Dylan and the family. Yes. Well, before we go, we want to say thank you to our new members at Patreon. And if you want to join our Patreon and get two bonus episodes a month, you can do so at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple for just $5 a month. Getting two extra episodes really is worth it because they're full length episodes. And we do other things like John episodes and fun things. So we want to say thank you to Mariah Bird, who upped her pledge, Evie Jean Joseph, Susan Rode, Melissa Dayton, Stephanie Hansen upped her pledge, Jilla McGregor, Elise Manor, Avidal Habaz, C.S. Saylor, April, Susan Lind, Hilda, Dawn Burkholder, Noah, Ashley Felton, Haley P. upped her pledge, Christy Nicole, Soph, Carly Eskin, Eve Campbell, Sherry Smith, Pop, Angela Oralanida, April Brown upped her pledge, Lisa DLT, Jay, Melody Crawford, Valentine Bergois upped her pledge, Louis Hernandez, Natalie Chu, Daniel Collins, Brandy Garza, Lily Cash Bushel, L upped her pledge, Pamela DeCosta, and Courtney Loke a fellow New Jersey teacher whose name I initially didn't get right. So I'm sorry about that. And everybody, if I don't say your name right, just let me know because I'll just say it again. I know that I'm not the best at this. So I try my hardest. It's better than if John would do it. I promise you. Oh, that's 100% the (laughs) truth. And also, I mean, we know what it's like to always get our last name wrong when people do it wrong. So we get it. 
We totally understand. So until next time, guys, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye.